This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. On October 1st, 2015, Hurricane Joaquin swallowed the container ship El Faro in the Bermuda Triangle of the Atlantic Ocean, resulting in the worst American shipping disaster in 35 years and the death of all the mariners on board. In a book, Into the Raging Sea, 33 Mariners, One Megastorm, and the Sinking of El Faro, journalist Rachel Slade describes the ship's final hours, the Coast Guard attempts at search and rescue, the ensuing federal probe, and she draws attention to what she says are the destructive forces of globalization and climate change that put the ship in harm's way. We welcome Rachel Slade to the Historian's Podcast. Hello, Rachel. How are you? Hi. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's our pleasure. Uh, With a degree in political science from Barnard College and a master's in architecture from the University of Pennsylvania, Rachel Slade is a journalist and also an architectural designer. She splits her time between Brookline, Massachusetts and Rockport, Maine. This uh, is a very gripping tale that you tell, and El Faro sank to the bottom of the ocean, and all the people on board died. I mean, how, how do you know what happened during the final hours aboard the ship before it sank? What makes this story so unusual and so gripping is that after the ship disappeared, the National Transportation Safety Board spent more than $3 million and 11 months to go down to the ocean floor 15,000 feet down and recover the ship's black box. They didn't know what they would find, but it turned out when they finally got it back to Washington, D.C., that it contained a record-breaking 26 hours of audio of conversations between the captain, the officers, and the helmsmen on the bridge of that ship leading up to the final moment that she was afloat. And I must say, reading that final moment where it's just the captain and one of the helmsmen, right, on the on the bridge, and an officer, a female officer, has gone below to get life jackets, but she she's never seen again by then, apparently. And uh, it was just so chilling. I mean, he's he's trying to tell the helmsman, "Oh, you, we'll get you. You got to just, you know, you got to put, you know, get up here." Uh, it's really remarkable. It's incredible that we have this transcript. It was 500 pages. It took it more than a thousand man hours to actually transcribe the audio. But what what you see is the slow unfurling of communication between the officers, the captain, and the helmsman. It's really horrifying because it's such a long, slow destruction of communication and and ultimately of this ship. It really tells you what it's like to work in this environment, a hierarchical environment, mm-hmm. um, one where there's a clear leader on a ship. The captain is considered God. Don't forget, mutiny was uh, a, 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 an offense punishable by death in the 19th century. So it's a, it's a tricky um, workplace environment, and you really must respect the captain's wishes. And in this case, the captain's wishes were completely wrong. Yes, he was steering uh, or having the uh, ship steered in a direction that took it into uh, harm's way in, in connection with the hurricane. And I gather that some of his officers 
saw this as wrong and and they uh, tried to correct him. Uh, it's like you know presidential advisors advising the president, but he he said no, no, I, I'm right. That's correct. What's crazy about this story, and again, thanks to the black box, we know exactly how it unfolded, is that the officers were very clear about how the hurricane was behaving. They understood that it was that they were on a collision course with this hurricane. And yet, in spite of all of their concerns and their cajoling and their professional uh, ways of approaching the captain with this information, he would not be moved. Hmm. But yet, um, in toward the end of the book, or in some of the material about it, when they're investigating the the, the, the sinking of the Alfaro, um, I think you say something to the effect that, from the point of view of the the, sh- the owners of the shipping company, or maybe the federal regulators and so forth, it is very convenient to blame everything on a dead captain. It's very convenient to do so, and that's exactly what happened. The National Transportation Safety Board and the Coast Guard both released a huge report, individual reports, and they listed recommendations to to change to change regulations, existing regulations, to prevent this from ever happening again. But ultimately, of course, they blamed the captain for choosing the route that he did. What's important to understand, and what I try so hard to contextualize in the story is the pressure that's put on the captain himself. As, as you mentioned, I spent a lot of time talking to mariners and, and masters of ships, global ships, uh, international ships, and American ships, and the pressures on these guys, they were all male, are tremendous to get those ships import on time. Otherwise, they're going to lose money. Mm. And who, who, was, who was the captain uh, of the ship? I mean, what was his name? I'm sorry. What was the what was the captain's name? The captain was Captain Michael Davidson. He was 52 years old, a graduate of Maine Maritime Academy, and a Maine native. He was very familiar with shipping in the in the Alaskan waters. They have storms up there, but they are not hurricanes. And you know, after this past hurricane season with Maria and Irma and the others, by the way, the worst hurricane seasons season in history we now know the powerfully destructive forces of hurricanes as if katrina wasn't enough to to tell us so i think in part the captain didn't quite understand how serious hurricanes are and experienced mariners who have been on that run and who have gotten close to hurricanes can tell you when you get into that storm's grip you cannot get out Hmm. so and in, in, in terms of that record that's on the black box, the uh, days you said of recordings, wh- what was their last out? Do you do you know? I mean, when could they have actually gotten out of uh, the, the hurricane's wrath, or, or you know, maybe not? Oh, you know, and sa- at least save the ship. So at a at about um, eight o'clock p.m. the night before the ship sunk. So the ship ship sunk around seven thirty-seven in the morning, but the night before the captain left everybody, went down to his cabin, and actually never came back up until 4 a.m. the next morning. So he was gone. At about 2 a.m., the second mate, Danielle Randolph, was on the bridge of the ship. This was her watch. And she plotted a course that would have saved them. It would have taken them due south. So they were heading 
south and east to Puerto Rico from Jacksonville. Her new course would have taken them due south between some islands and away from the trajectory of the storm. She called up Captain Davidson. She woke him up and she said, I've plotted this new course. I think I think it'll be it will be good for us. And instead of looking at the latest weather forecast, we know he didn't download anything when she called him. Instead of looking, he actually changed their course closer into the storm, so further east, further pulling them directly into the eye of Hurricane Joaquin. Why? Why did he do that? Or you don't? We don't know. Or. If you read my book, you understand the pressures that were on the captain, but you also understand the relationship between him and his second mate. It's a complicated story. It's now a familiar story. And I encourage folks to read it because it, it, is, it, it is a microcosm of what's happening in our working world today. Hmm. Very fascinating story. So, I mean, uh, you're speaking of something like sexual abuse. Is that what you're, you're saying? Um, not sexual abuse, but um, it, it, we did learn that um, in the previous that in their previous run, the captain did suggest a relationship, a sexual relationship with the second mate. She was the only female officer aboard that ship, and um, one can only imagine how his propositioning her transformed their working relationship. Mm. With, were there other women on board? There was another woman on board. She was an AB, an able-bodied seaman, so she was um, not on the bridge. So we never heard her conversation. By the way, we're talking on the Historians uh, podcast with the author, Rachel Slade, her, her book, Into the Raging Sea, about the sinking of the El Faro back in 2015. And... Let me ask you some things about the El Faro in in particular, or or this voyage or voyages like it. It was really uh, uh, unknown to me until reading the material about your book that there is a law that says that the ships that go from one American port to another must be American ships. And here with the El Faro, we had uh, the uh, vessel going from Jacksonville, Florida to Puerto Rico. So it had to be an American ship, and there aren't that many. You, you, could you tell us a little bit about that? There aren't that many American ships anymore. That's right. Um, the U.S. used to be a huge naval force. I mean, this ship was founded on shipping. I mean, sorry, this country was founded on shipping. Um, and, in fact, our earliest laws, um, created in part by our favorite uh, um, founder, Alexander Hamilton, were really geared towards shipping and protecting American shippers because that's where the bulk of revenue early on was coming from. Um, Mostly up here where I am in Boston and in Newburyport and in Salem, that's where the real money was coming from. So these lines, these laws were designed to protect those shippers. And the problem at this point is that because of regular, well, in part because of the regulations, um, Amer- anybody who's who's participating in the Jones Act can only run American-built ships owned by American shipholding companies and crewed predominantly by American mariners. 
That is terrific in theory, and it had worked for a long time. Unfortunately, now a lot of shippers have fled the American flag, and so now we have American ship ship companies that are actually flying foreign flags, so they could not participate in this route. This ship company called Tote is a Jones Act shipping company, so it had American-made ships. American-made ships are very expensive because we have no more shipyards. The U.S. Merchant Marine has been shrinking dramatically. And in fact, the American fleet now makes up only about 4% of the global shipping fleet. Mm. And But, but on this, uh, the Alfaro, most of the um, sailors were um, Americans, but there was a handful of Polish sailors, right? So, yeah, they weren't actually sailors. They were welders. They the, the ship was going to be transferred to Alaska, and in order for her to run in the cold Alaskan weather, they needed to install um, heating coils and other things to keep the ramps from freezing. And so those men, the five Polish workers, had been hired to um, retrofit the Alfaro for her Alaska, for her return to Alaska. We're talking with Rachel Slade, who is author of the book Into the Raging Sea, 33 Mariners, One Megastorm, and the Sinking of El Faro. It uh, happened back in 2015. We'll be back with uh, Rachel Slade in uh, just a moment. Here on the Historian's Podcast, we need your help with our GoFundMe drive. Uh, Please make a donation uh, to GoFundMe.com forward slash historians. 2018. Uh, We depend on your contributions to uh, keep going to cover uh, expenses in uh, producing the podcast. If you don't want to donate online, you can uh, send me a check, make it out to Bob Cudmore, and send to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. We're speaking with Rachel Slade, who's written a really well-researched book on the sinking of the El Faro uh, in 2015, a cargo ship uh, that went down in the Atlantic Ocean in the Bermuda Triangle uh, during Hurricane Joaquin. Her book is called Into the Raging Sea. The uh, El Faro was an old ship. You know, you were explaining some of the problems of American shipping companies and so forth. I, I get the impression it really wasn't, uh, what, what, up to snuff? Or, I mean, what is as, as good as, what's, let's say, a, a foreign ship coming from uh, from China in terms of its equipment and so forth? Correct. It's important to put this in perspective. First of all, we don't drive around 40-year-old cars anymore. They're considered antiques. And in shipping, it's, it's exactly the same. This ship was actually 28 years older than the average ship in American ports. So it was a very old ship. And what's important to understand here is not just that you couldn't find parts to service the ship anymore. They were actually milling their own parts and um, pulling parts off of scrapped ships that, that were similarly built. So it wasn't just that you couldn't get parts for the ship, but also you couldn't build the ship now as it was designed. It was built to 1960s standards. Um, regulations have changed quite a bit because we've learned so much. You know, every time there's an accident or a problem, um, regulations are updated. 
So this ship could not have been built the way she was. Hmm. Were there, uh, one little point I remember is that the lifeboats on the Alfaro were not covered lifeboats. We don't really know if they even tried to uh, launch their lifeboats because they were in the hurricane. But is that, uh, there's that issue. Were there other issues that could have impacted its sinking? Yes, you, you pointed out something really important, which is that all ship hulls built before 1986 are permitted to carry their old life-saving equipment, which just seems to be kind of counterintuitive because if they're older ships, are they not more vulnerable? But in any case, yes, this was carrying open life bolts. They, they had been permitted in the 1960s when the ship was designed. But now um, all ships built after 1986 carry enclosed lifeboats, which would have given the mariners a fighting chance. The other problems with this ship included that she had what's called a very low water line. So she sat pretty low in the water. And she also had um, openings that um, for ventilation that actually, in this case, permitted water to come in and flood her cavernous holes. So hold. So um, she was just incredibly vulnerable and probably should not have been in service anymore. And the Alfaro was carrying tons of stuff, including a bunch of automobiles, right, and other things. Yes. I mean, this, these ships are the lifeline of Puerto Rico. It's an island, and everything that you eat, wear, drive, hold in your hands, build with, has to be shipped to, to the island. Puerto Rico is also a hub, so um, all the Caribbean islands around it um, actually send smaller ships over to Puerto Rico to, to um, get goods to provide, you know, all the stuff of modern life for those islands as well. So, the Alfaro was serving a very important purpose, and if she didn't arrive on time in a couple of days, the shelves in in Puerto Rico would be bare. Hmm. I, I, Rachel Slade uh, with us, her book, Into the Raging Sea, about the sinking of the Alfaro in uh, 2015. I was really impressed with all the work you did. I mean, you interviewed practically everybody associated with this. And then the thing that really kind of astounded me, to learn more about what life at sea is like, you, I don't don't know if you were a crew member, you went as a passenger, but you went on cargo ships just to see how how it works? Exactly. To be fair to the mariners who we lost and the mariners who are still alive and working today, I really wanted to accurately depict what life was on was like on working ships. So I took a container ship from Italy to Baltimore, Maryland, um, and it was a 12-day voyage. And keep in mind, um, as soon as you're out of sight of land, you have no web service. This is not like a cruise. There's no in-flight entertainment. Um, And the food is just okay. And yes, I was on a working ship, and I spent most of that time on the bridge looking out to sea and watching the captain and officers and helmsmen interacting. And that really informed how I wrote the book. Mm. Um, Remarkable. In fact, I'm just curious. I mean, did you have some special connection to this disaster, you know, to put so much work into it? I mean, someone you knew and so forth? Uh, There are some of us who just have a connection to the ocean 
I think you know it when you do. I am drawn to the water. I am drawn to boats. I love to sail. I was a rower and then a coxswain. There's something about being on the water that for me is so incredibly magical. Mm-hmm. And so when I first heard about this story, of course, I wanted to, to solve this mystery. But it was also a way for me to connect with the ocean, which I find absolutely magical, but also in a way kind of frightening. And, and that, I mean, I'm drawn to, to things like that. Mm. And just a bit of a kind of the story behind the story of this book getting published. A long, I don't know if it was, it probably wasn't the whole book, but a long form uh, article on this was used by Yankee Magazine because a number of the people on the ship were from Maine, right? Yeah, actually, there were eight mariners on board that ship from New England, and five of them had graduated from the Maritime Academy, including the captain of the ship. So it's it's a very New England story. There were a couple of New Yorkers as well. Um, And then after that article, uh, you got the book published. It's by a major publisher now, right? It's Echo, which is an imprint of, I kind of forget now what the publishing company is. HarperCollins. HarperCollins. Yeah, yeah, so... Actually, when I wrote that story, and it was a very difficult story for me to write, um, because that was my first venture. That was my first moment when I started reaching out to families, and you know, some, of course, were so devastated they did not want to talk. Others were very wary of journalists. You know, in this day and age, I can understand that. And um, but some were willing to talk and share their stories, which just opened this story up wide for me. But keep in mind, we didn't have a black box at that point and weren't sure we would ever retrieve it. So once we had the black box and we got those transcripts, I knew that we had a major story here. Yeah. Um, what is your conclusion? I mean, it, the captain was plotting the wrong course. I mean, was that it? I mean, was it, you know, they could blame it all on the captain or was there anything in the ship itself or or, or just the, the way things are happening? I mean, you bring up big uh, issues, you know, like climate change. You know, we have hurricanes that are worse. What 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 caused this the ship to sink? The working title in the back of my head while I was writing it was how many bad ideas, how many bad decisions does it take to sink a ship? And the answer is countless. Um, I spoke to somebody recently who actually started enumerating all of the things that I found that conspired to take this ship down. And when you start to look at all the factors involved, it really seems like it was an accident waiting to happen. With global warming, with climate change, we're going to have more hurricanes like this. And we know that. I mean, the evidence is supporting that. Um, the, the hurricanes are getting bigger because the oceans are getting warmer and heat, hot water and humidity is what fuels hurricanes. And so this was a storm that that all forecasters in America thought was just going to dissipate and against all forecasts became whipped itself really into a frenzy over the Atlantic, which at that moment was two degrees warmer than has ever been before, whipped itself into a frenzy and became this enormously powerful yet compact storm. The storm sunk El Faro, 
But what's even more tragic is that it then took a hairpin turn and came back over the accident site and lingered for days, which made a search and rescue operation all but impossible. Hmm. Um, the mariners who serve on these ships, what, what are, who are they? I mean, what are, what are their lives like? It takes a special kind of person to decide to go to sea. Of course, there was a time when mariners left for years at a time. You know, I'm thinking of the whaling ships that left from uh, Nantucket and New Bedford, and those guys could be gone for four years, and maybe they'd never return. But even still, now, there are mariners who might spend up to eight months on on the sea, away from their families and loved ones. So first, let's remember the support system. If they have wives, if they have parents, those people are on shore and going about their lives and hoping that everything's okay. And oftentimes, mariners are a lot like World War II veterans. They they do not want to talk about the things that they've seen because they don't want to worry their family members. But so many of them have seen horrific things, not just weather, but violence, because you have these ships, um, they're, they're out of sight of land for for sometimes, you know, weeks at a time. And they're filled with mariners from different parts of the world, different socioeconomic groups, different religious beliefs. So they're all thrown together on on these ships. And sometimes things can go very, very wrong. Mm. Since this uh, disaster, I mean, are, are, are any any changes being made to, I don't know, shipbuilding or weather forecasting or uh, whatever to improve things? The good news is that we always learn from these shipping disasters, and that's why the National Transportation Safety Board and the Coast Guard spent more than two years investigating the causes of the accident. And like I said, they came up with this long list of recommendations. So they know. They know what I know. And when you read the book, you'll know what they know. They know that stuff has to change. But changing regulations takes a long time. There are so many stakeholders, especially the shipping companies, and of course, they're concerned about their bottom lines. Part of the reason that the open lifeboats, for example, were grandfathered in and allowed to continue to go with El Faro, even though she was an ancient ship, was because shipping companies pushed back against enclosed lifeboat regulations claiming or saying and truly saying that it would be too expensive for them to uh, upgrade their their ships and that it would put them out of business. The Coast Guard is, is very um, sensitive to those concerns. It does not want to slow down American business, American commerce. And so all of these suggested changes will need to go through a process of give and take. Hmm. Now that in, in researching this um, book, you listened uh, to the whole black box re- recordings. I, I mentioned the the last uh, recording from the from the bridge. Can you just name one other? We only have about a minute left. Uh, instance or incident that you heard or that you heard on that recording or saw in the transcript, I should say, uh, that moved you the most. Yes, it's this beautiful moment um, in the afternoon before the ship sunk when a helms- the helmsman is speaking to third mate Jeremy Ream. They're the only two people up on the bridge. 
nothing has happened yet. Every oh, the weather is is great. Everything looks fine, except they know they're heading for for a hurricane, and they start talking about weather that they've experienced in the past. And their language is so vivid and their descriptions are so vivid because when you've been through these storms, you can never forget. And at one point, Jack Jackson, the helmsman, vividly describes death. He saw death when he was on a ship in a, in a prior, on a prior um, route. He saw death and he described it. And it's so eerie because you know what's going to happen to Jack. And um, I'm sorry, we're, we're just out of time. Rachel Slade, our guest, her book, Into the Raging Sea, 33 Mariners, One Megastorm, and the Sinking of El Faro. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.